Thank you for taking an exit from Exodus um, for me. Um, I'm super excited. I need to stay. When I saw these lines, it reminded me of Aussie rules where the guys go, stay. Like, but anyway, I won't go into all those details. We don't want to go there. Um, and it is a real privilege to be with you. I want to call you to, as a church, to faith. That while we were worshiping and singing around the Father, I really felt God say, hey, trust me, come, and ask me for some stuff, you know. And so as a church, just, I don't know, I know some of the stuff that you're trusting for, um, and, but we, I just felt in doing worship going, hey, I want to encourage him to trust me for something significant, and let's lift the faith bar. Um, part of singing about the goodness of God is because he's so good, we get to ask such big asks from him, don't we, in our lives, and so... The privilege of that. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about an unexpected hope. Um, Keller released a book of, a few months ago around hope for uncertain times, uh, timely for COVID season. But I want to talk around what it looks like to find that and where that unexpected hope is. Hello, Chloe. It is so good to preach in front of my girl. Uh, let's go. Forgive me if I focus here this morning and I ignore the rest of you. Um, she loves this kind of attention. Um, but what happens? What happens when hope comes? from an unexpected people or from just ordinary people. Um, our church is called Everyday People for a very good reason. We love the idea that God would use every ordinary people, that an extraordinary God would use ordinary everyday people for his mission. It's the beauty of the gospel. Is that what qualifies us is Christ. The other title I had for this morning was Useful Tools, um, but Tools is not a great name. I'll, I'll share you why I nearly shared that um, title with you. So a few years ago, we in East London, um, part of Advance, we were up at a hub leaders moment in, in Joburg, and we were praying for one of the churches that we were helping and just serving and strengthening in East London. And in this prayer moment, this, this one guy, you might even know him, I'm going to shame him, um, Roger Curran. Um, we're praying, and in the middle of the prayer, Roger says, Honor, I feel like you, you're the right tool. Um, and all I heard is, you're a right tool. <laughs> And I'm, I'm standing, and, and we're a bunch of guys, and eventually this guy giggles. You know what happens in those prayer moments. The next guy giggles. Eventually we're all like bursting and laughing, saying, the one guy, I think it was Rick, said, you just called honor a tool. And so Roger says, no, 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 no. I feel like God's saying you're the right tool for this job um, in this church, and etc. I've got over that, um, and God has done some inner healing in my life. I'm happy to be a useful tool in his hands. I'm hoping that this morning when we walk out of here that you feel I'm happy to just be a tool in God's hands uh, and by, by, by His grace, um, a useful tool. And we're going to go to text this morning. What's happening in 1 Corinthians, um, a friend of mine is doing a series called The Messy Church or Letter to a Messy Church, um, this idea of the church in mess. And what happens in this church is Chloe's people sends a message to Paul saying, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on that's not cool in our church. Can you come and help? And Paul steps into it. And what's interesting is Paul, when he speaks into this church, doesn't correct all the behavior. It reminds him of what their calling is and what qualifies them for this calling. It's a very interesting thing. He doesn't say, hey, sort this out, go have these meetings, call these meetings. He says, hey, let me remind you why I've placed you in the city of Corinth as a church. And let me remind you what qualifies you to be a useful tool to the gospel in the city. So why don't you go there with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Um, the text should be up. 26 to 31, we're going to read. For consider your calling, brothers. Isn't it interesting that Paul pauses and says, before we correct any behavior, remember your calling. Remember why you're here. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I love how Paul, when he starts about you in Christ, he kind of just rattles all us, sanctified, you're justified, you, you're redeemed by Christ. He can't stop himself in some ways. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. It's almost like Paul is serving the church some humble pie. It's almost like he's saying, hey, I think you've forgotten why God chose you and why God placed you in the city. Let me remind you what qualified you. Can you imagine on arriving at South Bend, and I remind you, and I'll, I'll speak to you as a church in trouble, and I'll go, hey, South Bend, can I just tell you that none of you are wise, you're all foolish. None of you are strong or powerful, economically or physically, you're, just, you're weak, you're weaklings. And hey, guys, there's nothing special about you, you're just ordinary people. Yes, you're going to love honor, aren't you? Hey, you're going to, oh, Luke, inviting back again. And Paul kind of has his authority, and, he, and what is he doing? He's drawing their attention off themselves onto why God would choose them. He's saying, hey, let me remind you why God chose you. I love the message, the paraphrase that says it like this. It's a little bit more blunt than, than Paul was in our language. Take a good look, friends, at yourselves, friends, at who you were, where you were called into this life. And he's even talking about their salvation. So he's saying, what qualified you for salvation and what qualified you for mission in, in some ways? He's, I don't see many of the brightest and the best amongst. Imagine me greeting you this morning. Hi, South Bend. I don't see many of the brightest and best amongst you, but I'm so happy to be with you. And then he goes, among you, not many influential. Some of you think you've got money. You actually don't really have a lot of money. Um, not many of your high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. How God uses us, how God would use, how hope comes from an unexpected people. How God would use me, honor, why God would even save me. And we look at that, we, we often speak to people around the calling of God in our lives. And the first thing people do is, hey, honor, I don't, I don't think I know enough to say yes to this this call to be a missionary. We talk about missional church where everyone sees themselves as a missionary. Um, Luke, when Luke was with us, one of the things we came up with was everyone, everywhere, every day was like a, that's how we're going to live as a church. Every one of us, everywhere we go, every day we're on mission for God. And we go, we don't know each other enough. Honor, I don't, I don't have enough strength in me or time in my day to be on mission for God or, or honor. Who am I? Why would they listen to me? Who, what is special about me that people would listen to this? And there are no more and no less, and we are no more and no less than tools in the hand of the ultimate craftsman. I want to encourage you that even if you feel like this a bit, yes, honor, that's me. I feel dumb. I don't have enough knowledge in me. Honor, I don't have enough strength in me to say yes to this call. Or honor, who am I? What qualifies me? As this, even as we're just saying, you're a good, good father. I know who I am because of that. Creating and shaping for himself a people. The idea that God's big mission on earth is that he is creating and shaping for himself a people. Exodus is all about that, calling out of Egypt to himself. There's language that God uses, I'm making a people to myself. That the, the job is to be and come towards me. What an incredibly inclusive hope. But the sting here in this hope is that the hope's not on us. We're living in a world that looks at ourselves, don't we? How do I qualify? 
What is my qualification? How do I make it? How, how am I useful? Am I, do I know enough to, to enter a, a tricky conversation? Or am I going to go into a tricky conversation despite not knowing enough and going, hey, I'm going to take a risk and, and trust God to give me the right words and maybe my heart will, I'm that guy. I'm, I'm the heart guy. Like I'll, I'll jump in and hope you hear my heart, but I might not have the right words. And sometimes we just need to take some of those leaps. And Christ is in, the kingdom that Christ is creating is in, it's, it's very different. It's unusual to the one that we live in here in Cape Town or in East London. Christ is an unusual kingdom. It's different. We should be different. We want to live in our cities. We want to live amongst our friends. But we also realize that we, there's something different in us. We're not placing our faith in our strength and our wealth and where we come from. We're actually placing it in him. We, we kind of defer to God. We're going, hey, he's the one that qualifies. He's the one that called me. And because of that, we are different. And Christ builds differently. And Paul is speaking here about the transforming work of the king, another kingdom. We are not. We are living in Cape Town. We, in Christ, we're not of Cape Town. No, we are of Christ. We're, we're his sons and daughters. And we're living days where even, even church and, 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 and church and unbelievers are finding their identity and their confidences in, in who they are, what they are. What do I have? What can I do? Where do I come from? It doesn't take long in our conversations. Even as, as guys that lead churches, looking I can be in the corner and we can talk and we go, hey, I've got these insecurities. I just don't know if I'm enough for this church or, or this situation or I don't have enough in me for this What's happening in those conversations? We're busy dropping our gaze to who we are. We've taken our gaze off the one that's qualified and called us. And I can honestly say the moments that you and I struggle in our faith to step forward for God and trust him is when we've taken our gaze off him. Because when you look at Christ and you, you're reminded of who he is, we can't but have hope and joy and faith and say, hey, we can do this thing. But... And like everything, we look at this. We flow, and it flows from the world that we live in. It flows from our conversations. Our kids watch us. I often say to young parents, your children are watching where you're placing your faith in. Is it in mom and dad's ability to provide? Is it mom and dad's ability to lead? Is it, or is it Jesus that provides and calls us and qualifies us? And we compare Paul's list here of the, the foolish, the weak, the nobodies, and then later, or early in the scriptures, actually, there's, a quali- there's another list of qualifications. Um, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel writes about who to pick for his kingdom that to qualify. And you can go there in Daniel 1, verse 3 to 5. And I'm going to read the paraphrase because it speaks just our language. The king told, told Ashpenaz, head of the palace staff, listen to his list of qualifications here, to get some of the Israelites from royal family and nobility. Young men who were healthy and handsome, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, perfect specimens. And then we're going to take these perfect specimens and we're going to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the law of the magic and the fortune-telling. The king then ordered that then that they served in the same menu and served and ate at the royal table, the best food, the finest wine. And three years after training, they would be given positions in the king's court. You've got Nebuchadnezzar's list of qualifications, and then you have Paul's list. It doesn't take a genius to figure out how radically different they are. But it doesn't take long for you and I to lean towards King Nebuchadnezzar and go, ah, let's look for those guys. Who are the guys that God's calling? Who, who, how's, and am I qualified? When you qualify your, yourself before Christ, whose list are you looking at? Whose list are you comparing yourself to? Are you, are you on Paul's list or are you, do you lean towards 
Daniel 1, King Nebuchadnezzar. Are we, are we there? Going, and, and I would say when we compare to the second list, to, to, to the king in Daniel, that's when we find ourselves in trouble for ourselves. That's when we disqualify ourselves. Because we can never ever be weak enough. We can never be foolish enough. We can never be nobody's enough. There's, there's, a, there's a limitlessness there, isn't there? But there's somebody that's qualified, the special, the perfect specimen. We, can't over, we somehow can't get there. We just can't get ourselves quite there. And it's not hard to see the radical difference between these two kingdoms. Yet in the church and in your life and my life, in our thinking, in our being, and how we, how we look at ourselves before Christ, and how we look at ourselves and, and our usefulness to Christ. God, could you use me to reach my friend? Maybe there's a work colleague, or maybe there's a, a, a mate at sport that you're playing sport, or at university, you, that, that's quite radical, and, and you've got a heart for this person. And you go, I can't, God, could you use me to be the person to play a significant role? Would you use me as a useful tool in, in the gospel? Would you use me to bring hope and life and Christ to my friend? And I wonder what in your minds are the processes where you go, tick, 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 no, I can't. What is the list? Is the list, hey, I don't know enough. Is the list, I'm not strong enough in my faith. Or, or is the list, like, he doesn't like me. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm in a popular gang at school. Or is the qualification the one Paul brings to us? See, Christ says, trust me. My calling is, it's my calling on you. I've called you. Your authority, your qualification comes from, from me and who I am. And it's an incredibly, it should bring hope to you and I. And then we look at Jesus' kingdom and how he builds. And this is, there's three aspects I'm going to quickly just highlight this morning around Christ and how he builds and the kind of people that he uses to initiate his kingdom here on earth. And we've spoken about strength and weakness and, 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 our, and our heritage and where we're from. The first thing we see is that Jesus uses the weak and the lowly. If you're weak and lowly, you're in, good, you're in a good space for Christ to use you. You're in a good, unlike other religions where we, we have to achieve our salvation or work ourselves towards Christ. No, we come to the gospel weak and lowly. We can't save ourselves. We're not in a position to save ourselves. We need radical rescue through Christ and by Christ. The second thing we see about Jesus and following Jesus is that it's not about power. It's actually about serving. We serve and we sacrifice. As Christ follows, it's not what can I get out of this. It's what can I give. It's can I come to church early and set up sound, or can I serve, can I sacrifice? Can, um, in East London, there's a, like a trend on Sundays to, to take your kids to the wimpies and the beachfronts, and there's some amazing beach um, breakfast spots. And, and we were saying, so, so are you prepared to say no to, to certain things for your kids and with your kids to be able to say yes to what Christ has called us to? We're starting a series next week um, in East London called Church, Why Bother? Um, just why bother going to church and being part of a gathering like this? Why? Because we feel like in our culture there's a, there's, there's a need to be reminded of the beauty of the gathering and why it matters to Jesus. And s- s- thirdly, we see that Jesus sees the world just through different eyes. He's got a different pair of eyes on you. He's got a different pair of eyes on me in my life. It's his eyes. It's, um, I love um, it's Peter Gabriel that sings um, um, In Your Eyes, and he says a thousand churches. like this, this, the, And he's singing, and I'm sure it's not a, a gospel song. Please don't sing it in worship next week. But certainly there's this idea that when Christ looks at cities, he sees cities differently to the way you and I see it. You and I will much rather get caped on and say, what can, it, what can it bring to me? What can I benefit by living in this city? As we've just seen, Christ sees cities and he goes, hey, there are many, many missionaries to many, many that need to hear the gospel. And he sees it differently. You see, pastors or like the pastoral 
kind of like heart says, how's my church doing? The missionary in us says, how's my city doing? Like there's a different question in our hearts. And, and I wonder sometimes Christ goes, hey church, I'll build it. I'm okay. I'm your, I'm your ultimate shepherd. Hey city, hey church, there's a city that needs to see Christ as well. So we see the city different. We see church differently. He just sees the, this life that we live very, very differently. And then I want to remind you just, and you're going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to go, go quickly through some examples just to encourage you with um, the men that God used and then the women that God used through Scripture. And most of them are going to be Old Testament. But let me just set the scene. So in the Old Testament, in Genesis, there are two laws that kind of like, like humankind in that, in that era um, ruled over every other law, basically. First law was that a woman's worth was how pretty she was and how many children she could have. That was in those days. That's Genesis. It's not now. Okay. Just so anybody hears what I'm not saying, what I am saying. And another law in the early days of Genesis was that the firstborn son, son, had the rights to everything in his father's kingdom. So you wanted to be a firstborn, and if you were a woman, you better be pretty and have lots of kids. That's, that was how Genesis worked. And if you were those two, you were set for life and you, you lived the life. But if you weren't, there was no chance of any significance in your life because you, you kind of like disqualified already by just not being the firstborn and not etc. etc. So let's look at in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to give you some examples of who God used and who he blessed and used. Not just used, but who his blessing was and who he used in the Old Testament. He chooses Abel over Cain. Who's the older? Do you know? Bible? Cain's older. Oh, some of you guys are nervous about that one. He, he chooses Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau. He chooses the one that stole his brother's his older brother's inheritance, and he chooses to bless and use him. He chooses Joseph, the youngest, over Reuben, the oldest brother. He chooses David, the shepherd boy, over all his other brothers. You see what happens in God? God just looks and he you don't have to qualify like the world qualifies. He literally looks at us and he goes, what, what the world qualifies with, I've got a different set of standards, and I'm looking for something else. Not only were these men younger sons, but many of them were very, very flawed in their character. I preached at man camp about Jacob running for his life for 20 years from his older brother Esau. This oaf, eh? that was, let's say his body was carpeted like a Persian rug with red hair. It's like, like a barbarian coming at him. And he knew my brother's last words were, I am going to take, I'm going to kill you. That's it. It's done. Anyway. Flawed men used by God. And then we turn to the scriptures, and we see these incredible examples of women that God chooses to use throughout scripture and throughout history. Thousands of years later, in some societies, some of these principles still apply. Sadly, it's not, it's not the truth everywhere, but it's still there. But we see God using the older, less attractive Sarah over Hagar, the, the pretty maidservant. He uses the plain Leah over the beautiful, attractive Rachel. God also uses Ruth and, and Raham and Toma and Bathsheba, all outsiders from the normal standards. Okay, I don't know if you know your, your scripture. Maybe you're new to church, but let me, if you're new to church, let me tell me how, who these ladies were. So Tamar, you know, not many kids here, hey? So Tamar was the one that tricked her father-in-law into to having sex with her. And God still used her in his big plan. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a pagan and despised race amongst the Israelites. Bathsheba was a wife of another man forced into an adulterous affair with David. If you had a choice today, 
Who in your genealogy and family pool would you, would you leave out of the family tree? We all have those guys, eh? We have those things that you're standing in a braai and you're talking and someone mentions like, some cousin that you know and you're going, oh, oh I hope they don't like, join the dots and realize it is a cousin of my dad. And, and you kind of pretend that you don't. You just own guys because of their back past or so. Maybe when you go to genealogy.com and we've, got, we've noticed with folk at a certain age, they become very interested in where they come from in their genealogy. Maybe it's just time and interest, etc., and wanting to know their roots. And, and you get to the search engine, and some names you're just not going to enter in. You're just too scared to realize that they're actually form, part of your family. But yet when we read Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, every one of these women's names come into the genealogy. See, God's not allergic or scared of a messed up person or a messed up history or a messed up past. It doesn't disqualify us from being used by God. You listen to this, how could God, why would he use these? Because it's him, the power and the qualifications in him, it's not in them. It's not even their behavior, it's on him and what he did on the cross. We don't go on mission, we don't have the right to share the gospel with our friends because we had a great week in quiet times, and we haven't shouted or kicked the dog in a week, and now, now I can share the gospel. I would venture to say that every single time you and I open our mouths to share the hope that is Christ with a friend that doesn't know Jesus yet, that none of us are ever qualified on us to say a word to that person. All our qualification comes from him. Everything comes from him. And maybe some of the things that keep us back from sharing Jesus with some of our friends that don't know him yet or are investigating are stuff that we've placed on us that God never placed on us. Maybe God never said, hey, I'm I'm so worried about your reputation, rather keep quiet. Look, I think there's sometimes where maybe we should. (laughs) But but we can't go wrong by trusting in him and leaning in his grace. We're part of a storyline that no one wants to be in. We all love storylines that go from big, better, butter, or big, better, sorry, not big, better, from glory to glory, we imagine our lives just progressing and growing and progressing and growing. We live in a progressive society. We, we, if we're not growing, we're going down. We, we're dying or we're stagnating. And yet in Scripture, we look at these stories. We look at Joseph, in, enslaved in Egypt, far away and how he sees, my life cannot get any worse. Yet God is in the backdrop doing something amazing in Joseph's life. Ruth, a foreigner, a pagan, follows a mom and lays down her life to say, I'll worship your God. Boaz arrives on the scene and she becomes part of the genealogy of Christ. Sometimes when our lives are at the worst, our friends need to still hear us speak of Christ. Still hear us share our faith in him, our trust in him. Maybe in these seasons, our friends that don't know Jesus need to just hear us take a deep breath and go, I trust God. Even even in our worst crisis, our friends that don't know Jesus need to hear our, our confidence in him, not ourselves. Not in, can I make a plan? Can I figure this out? Can I, can I, can I lean on, on a wealthy family member? Or can I use my boss's influence? No, no. They need to see us trusting him and see our qualification and our security in him. Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 35. There's two little scriptures before, before, before I land. And this is the, the writer in Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets. Do yourself a favor of that scripture. Go and read some of those stories in the Old Testament. It will breathe incredible courage into you. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, not through confidence, not through their strength and their power, but through faith in Christ, conquered kingdoms, in, 
Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. We were made strong out of weakness. It's almost like in Scripture, we can't get away from the fact that God uses the weak. That weakness before God is almost more of a qualification than our strength and our resources or our cleverness. Yet it's the thing that our society is most allergic to. We do not enjoy showing weakness to one another, do we? We have to be brave. We, even our faith culture can sometimes be, don't ever acknowledge when you're struggling to believe or struggling to trust God. Don't show your tears. Don't show, you know, like in, in the olden days they used to have big pulpits. And when I, when I was taught to be a preacher, they said they had it there to hide the shivering, shaking legs of the guy preaching. That you don't want to show the people preaching how nervous you are in your preaching or your delivery. Fortunately, you're going to have to just see it. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back the dead from resurrection. Remember New Testament's Lazarus? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. They were living and they knew there's a better life coming. There's an eternity coming. There's a guy that I follow on Twitter and every, every day, I don't know, I'm sure it's on auto set or whatever, but the reminder comes, hey, hey Christ follower, you're one day closer to heaven. This is a reminder that this is not our home. This is not our home. There's a home coming, but this is not it. And maybe some of us might be called by God to lay down everything for him. Gideon, again, the least in his father's family, his father's family, the least in the tribe. He had nothing special about him. Jephthah, outcast, outcast, a son of a prostitute. Can you believe it? We read these beautiful stories and the gospel that we don't want to hear. And this is the culture we live in. In James 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers. I think when the writer writes, beloved brothers, you know something's coming. Like if I say to Luke, hey, my beloved mate, can I have a chat to you? Luke inside's going, oh, oh here we go. Buckle up. Honor's going to go straight for something Yeah, I hope I'm faithful in doing that to my beloved brother. But listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? It's almost like our, our poorness, our weakness causes us to be rich in trusting God. And it's almost like we can't have both. It's like weakness and recognizing my weakness and my limits and my limitations frees me to grow rich in trusting God. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. It's as simple as that. We love God. We come poor and weak before him. But yet we are so rich in faith. I pray for you as a church. I pray for you as a person that you would be wealthy in faith faith, that you would be rich in faith, that you know what it's like to rely on God and Jesus. I, I pray that you would have moments, even this week, that you would go, if God doesn't come through, yeah, I'm in trouble. Your church, church, please live in the space of, we need God to come through for us. We, let's live away from the space of, we've got this. We've got this sorted. We've got this together. We've got the perfect team. We've got a perfect venue. We've got, we've got cash in the bank. We've got, we've, let's stay away from, we've got this. <laughs> I would rather South Bend have a, 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 an attitude and a heart, and when we look at South Bend, everybody goes, wow, they trust God. These guys just keep trusting God. They have a rich faith pedigree to them. And I suppose that the crux of it lands with, this, with these two very, very contrasting ideas. Firstly, religion appeals to the strong. Religion appeals... Religion says you can do it. You can work your way to God's good books. Religion says if you just work a little bit harder, you've got this thing. 
And we can apply that to everything in our lives. Our confidence, our competence, our success rates, the message that we sense, the message that we send. Just try a little harder. Pull yourself together and you can do this. And what religion says is if you just try a little harder, you're going to get there. Yet the gospel appeals to the weak and the lowly. The gospel. Why, why is the gospel so difficult to hear for some of my friends that don't know my Jesus yet? Simply because they don't, they don't want to admit or get to the place of acknowledging their weakness or their loneliness before God. And we can't come to Christ without actually getting to the place of saying, I cannot save myself and there is nothing in my heritage to save me. I, I need the grace of God to grip hold of me and hold me. The gospel appeals to the weak, the lowly, the poor, the foolish. We're a sinner and we can do nothing about it. We needed Christ. When we sang that, how, um, how will I ever know what it cost? We, we actually do know today. It cost him his son and the cross. It cost him that. Why? Because before Christ and before our holy God and a perfect God, we are foolish and weak to save ourselves. And if we're foolish and weak to save ourselves then we're also foolish and weak to think that we are going to save our friends that don't know Jesus. We, you see how it continues in our life? We don't, we don't come into the gospel weak and lowly and then become, hey, I've got this. No, no. We come into the gospel weak and lowly and we stay on mission as Christ follows, weak and lowly. God, I need you. God, I need you to help me with my friend. And why is this important? Because it, it sets us up for a life like this. We can stop pretending. <laughs> In a culture where it's okay to be foolish or don't know everything or have everything and be everything, it takes pretense away. We don't have to pretend that we have got everything together. So we can stop pretending. We can stop hiding our weaknesses from one another. We can be honest brothers. Um, we can stop only sharing the best of our lives on social media or with our friends. We can share the stuff that we struggled with. We, the, the one thing that's beautiful about staying in a home with your friends is you see the faith that they have, but you also see the, the, the areas that they're saying, this is hard to believe for. Come on, let's, let's keep trusting. And, and that's why we need each other to go, hey, you might struggle, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna back you and, and support you here. We can stop measuring and comparing ourselves. We're not yet to jockey for position and, and who's leading better or, or worse. And then my last quote before me. We go, um, Karl Barth said this, when we, when we share only our victories, we become competitors. When we share weakness, we become brothers. We need churches of brothers and sisters. We don't need churches with a bunch of competitors. The world's competitive enough. We, most, a lot of you are in competitive sport. We've been competing in work and career. Our kids are, com everybody's competing. We walk into church and we can put our competition hat off. And we can become brothers and sisters in our relationships, in our life groups. When we gather on a Sunday and someone checks in on you, they take the trouble to go, hey, how's your week been? We're able to say, hey, actually, it's, it sucked. <laughs> I really struggled in my faith. Or I struggled with this. Hey, let's have a, a coffee or something or a meal later in the week. But oh, we only share our wins. When every Sunday we get together at life group, hey, it's all going well. We, we're victorious. We're more than conquerors in Jesus. We've got scripture. We can quote this stuff. And there's some, some great preachers. No, we're not great preachers. There are preachers out there that will give you a ton more sermons to preach. But when we get to church and we share, hey, this is where I'm weak and I'm vulnerable. It says, I need you, but more than that, I need Christ. Let's be a people that continuously need Christ. We're going to worship. Is Jade? It's, it is Jade, hey? There he is.
Why don't we stand to our feet? So here's my question to you this morning. As we, as we sing this last song, where, where have you taken your eyes of Christ? <laughs> where have you placed your eyes on your own self? What is the area in your life that you're looking and you, you when I was speaking this morning, maybe you sat, you stood, sat there going, oh, Flip, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the one that I don't know enough. Or, hey, if only I had more power or more influence or, or like, I'm a nobody, how's God going to use me? The gospel's pretty simple for all of us. We come confessing and repenting. We're saying, God, I'm so sorry for putting my eyes on, on me and looking at my qualifications. This morning, I want to put my eyes on you. I don't want to be the clever guy. I want to be the faith guy. I want, I want to be known for my trust and my faith in you. I want to be, be rich in faith, not rich in my confidence or my competence. I want to be rich in you, Jesus. Won't you? Let's do that as we worship this, this morning.